Now, hello everyone. Welcome to the brand new podcast for the love of books, a show all about books and their authors, because who doesn't love to escape into the magic world of books and or chocolate. <laughs> the podcast features indie and small press authors who navigate the pioneer and sometimes treacherous waters of self-publishing. I will be your host, Emma. And we're going to have a great show with an awesome guest lineup from all over the world. It is my pleasure to introduce my guest, Canadian mystery author, Luba Lysichin. Luba worked for Canada's largest museum, the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto for more than 20 years. She's the author of two books, Theft by Chocolate and its sequel, Theft Between the Rains. Hello, Luba, how are you? Hello, Emma, nice to be here. Awesome, glad to have you here. First of all, tell us, how did you get into the Canada's largest museum that obviously inspired your work or in other words, what is it like to be a glamorous museum employee? <laughs> that just fascinates me. Gosh, I haven't talked about how I first was hired in a while, but I actually, back in the day when you used to look for jobs in newspapers and there was the tiniest little ad I mean I swear just a couple of lines and they were looking for someone with my computer experience because that's what we used to call um, our personal computers back then and I just happened to have had the tiniest bit of training and they were looking for this person with this skill for their education department. And so I got an interview and they actually almost didn't hire me because I was overqualified. I'd had the master's degree in history yeah. that I wouldn't stay in the job because it was a, a little bit more of a mundane um, uh, job description. And, but they liked me enough to take a chance on me. And I ended up staying at the museum for more than 20 years. But I moved around to a number of different jobs uh, within the museum. So it was always, I was always learning something, always doing something fascinating. And I had a lot of exposure to a lot of different people in different departments, to a lot of behind the scenes. It wasn't, as you, I know you were tongue in cheek with the, the glamorous life of a museum employee. I wasn't in the curatorial section of the museum, which is what everybody I think thinks that, that that's all that museums are about. I was doing administration. But as I said, that the, the jobs that I had gave me so much exposure to people in different places. And my the longest period of time that I spent in a particular job was in the programs department and what I consider the Royal Ontario Museum's golden age of programming. And we were doing everything from uh, film programming, book launches, children's and adults programs that included field trips and workshops. So I, I just got to meet a lot of people, got to work in a lot of different departments, but the, uh, the department where I worked that has inspired the particular uh, scenes in my two books was a department called Cultural Innovations, and we provided consulting services to museums around the world. And it was a really it was a really small team of people, really interesting group, but 
you know, we were just a, a few people trying to do a really big job. So that I was always having a lot of adventures or things going wrong. And, you know, I was stressed, so I was eating chocolate a lot. So that ended up coming into my work as well in terms of my main character being a chocolate addict and and bringing that particular aspect of myself into my writing as well to make to make a little light of. So is that main character actually you? Is it based on you or is it you? Well, I would say it's inspired by myself. No, by it's yourself. definitely a lot of similarities, but there, I definitely took a lot of literary license in terms of things that happened in the book didn't <laughs> were definitely from my imagination. But in terms of the parts of the book where I present the way things are, are, are done in a museum or describe what you know what the that what an office might look like or what a job might be like is definitely drawn from my personal experiences there okay and uh, the first book is inspired by a real life and never solved art theft at the royal ontario museum in toronto so tell me about that the genesis of that and did that real happen i mean somebody really stole art that that's that's correct but it, I didn't have that in the first draft of my book I actually took a creative writing program at Humber College and I wrote a first draft there and worked with a a, a writer an established writer one-on-one -on -one with it and then you know once you're finished it you go off and do a, a rewrite and I looked for a publisher an agent for a while couldn't find one so the book literally sat on my computer for at least a year if not two before I came back to it and I happened and, and at that point I was working at a college at Toronto College George Brown College and we were building a new campus and we were working with a number of consultants one of them was our a security consultant and we just happened to start talking one day and I told him that I had worked at the ROM and he told me about how his family had been in the security business in Toronto for a couple of generations and he had some interesting and very little known information about a real life heist that had taken place at the ROM in the 1980s. Now, everybody, most people who worked at the museum knew about this. There, there are sort of small heists that take place at almost any museum. Uh, sometimes it's just construction workers who are coming in as, and, and decide that they're going to walk out with an artifact <laughs> thinking that they won't be caught. But this this one, so as I said, took place you know, a while before I had started working there. So it wasn't anything that we were talking about. But then this consultant had information that only someone in a protective services or security business would know. And he shared that with me. So I went back to my book and I decided to write it into the story. And I ended up doing almost an, an entire rewrite in order to incorporate it because it was so fascinating. And I've always thought if I had the skills of a a, a journalist, I would have loved to have done like a, a journalistic investigation into mm -hmm. that because they never caught the person who stole, it was a small collection of opals and they were in a gem gallery where there were things that were much more valuable. Okay. So the, the, the belief is that it was designer heist. So someone was specifically targeting the opals for whatever sentimental reasons and 
and then after that, it had a little bit of its own story as well, because some of the pieces ended up on the black market in Hong Kong and the Royal Ontario Museum was able to get them back and put them back into their collection. But it's never been solved. They, they don't know who it was, but the particular circumstances of how this thief bypassed the security system at the Royal Ontario Museum at that time, remember this is several, de many decades ago, uh, it, people in institutions and retail stores around the world were suddenly at risk because if one person figured out how to circumvent mm -hmm. it, then anyone could. So it literally changed the security technology globally because of this particular oh. heist. Okay. So it's a fascinating story. I mean, you did a complete rewrite, right? I did, I did. So how long did that whole process from the initial, what you had the initial version to the rewrite, how long did that take? So the, the first draft took me about 10 months while I was in the writing program. And then it took me another year to do the second draft. I, I was working by that point. So I was working full time. So I didn't have as much time to devote to it. And then, as I said, it and then it rested for a couple of years or, or one or two years. And then the, the third rewrite with the um, Opal Heist probably took me another, uh, maybe, I would, it couldn't have been more than half a year. But I, again, I was working full time. So it's always hard to judge how much time it took. It was just because I didn't have as much time to devote to it. And uh, and I decided to try one more time to try to get it published. So did you self-publish or traditionally? I, as I mentioned, I couldn't find a publisher okay. So then after I did the rewrite, it was again, just, you know, we all always call these things fluke or chance, or in, I'd like to call it synchronicity. I just had to have heard about this amazing women's fiction festival in southern Italy and in part of the the conference they have pitch sessions with publishers and agents and I thought well geez you know I could go on a, a vacation to Italy and go to this women's fiction conference pitch the book and if nothing happens at least I'll have gotten like an amazing vacation out of it so I decided to give it a chance and it the the conference takes place other than in times of the pandemic uh annually in a beautiful beautiful town um and UNESCO World Heritage Site called Matera okay and I pitched it there I pitched it very poorly I thought and I'm not being intentionally humble or wanting to seem self-deprecating, but I really was a bundle of nerves. It's like speed dating with publishers and agents and yes. one to the one to the other. And I, I just, you know, I wasn't, I don't, I, I just was really nervous, was tongue tied and left feeling that I hadn't sort of made my point, but I, I did, came prepared with my sample chapters and query letters and all of that. And about a month after I returned home from that trip, I got a call from a publisher in the UK. They were actually a startup digital publisher. And so it was at a time when digital publishing was just starting to come onto our radar. Mm -hmm. And um, and they picked me up. And then, again, synchronicity, one of the uh, publishers was a chocolate lover, an addict herself. And so it really resonated with her and she thought it was a lot of fun. And so it was a really good match. 
Excellent. What year was that? What year was that? That was around 2011. And then the book was published in, in the summer of 2012. And unfortunately, because it was <clears throat> that time of startups, the publishers weren't, didn't end up making a go of it. They, they did uh, put out a number of, of books, but they ended up closing their doors in 2014. So the rights came back to me. Okay. So I had to republish it as an independently as published. As an independent? Yeah, exactly. Oh. And had gone through some of the process so it was a little bit less of a learning curve than it might have been for someone who you know hadn't gone through that process in the first place but it, it was still a lot to learn on my own you know just in terms of you know so many different things from the technical things to tax issues and all of that as I'm sure you're aware so yes Okay, now on to your second book. I absolutely love the catch line on your back cover. I just love that. There's a front cover, back cover, and I'm going to read it. What would you do if you worked at a reputable international museum and artworks listed as still missing since World War II began showing up on your doorstep? Did that actually happen or you totally made that up? Oh my goodness, if that had really happened to me, then I, I don't, <laughs> I don't think I would have had the nerves for it. No, it's complete, a completely fictional story. And drawn from two really different streams of thought that came to me, I'm a, a big film lover and a real fan of documentary film. So I was watching a film called Lost Rivers, which is about how urban rivers have largely been undergrounded and have become cities uh, part of cities sewer systems and it reminds me of the fact <clears throat> excuse me that the Royal Ontario Museum is actually situated above one of these underground waterways it's called Tattle Creek and I thought oh that's kind of interesting and I thought well maybe there's maybe maybe there's a book in this because frankly after I finished theft by chocolate even though I left a few loose ends I, I didn't really think I was going to write a sequel to it and but people kept asking me about it. Um, they they liked my characters, and I was constantly getting asked by people when I would come up with the second book. So then I saw this documentary, and I thought, oh, that's really interesting. And then not too long after that, I saw yet another documentary called "The, the Rape of Europa," which is about the Nazi plunder of art during okay. World War II. And I started to kind of, you know put together this idea of what you know we see I, I mean I love movies like the monuments man and woman in gold and you know art that has was either confiscated or stolen world war ii they they fascinated fascinated me as well as I think a lot of people and I thought what if I turned that kind of upside down and instead of someone discovering a work of art it just starts showing up and how can can I make that intriguing and and make it about well why are these artworks suddenly just appearing on this museum worker's doorstep and what how is she going to handle it and and is this part of a much bigger cache of art that was that was stolen during World War II and and one other thing that played into it is my parents had lived through the war in Europe and my mother had ended up working in Germany and she had told me about how at the end of the war 
people were just grabbing everything. She was working in, in a hotel. She was still quite a young girl. She was actually kind of in a forced labor situation there. But she said, you know, the war ended and, and people, allies included, were coming into the hotel, literally taking everything off the walls, taking furniture, anything that they could take and carry home with them. And I just, and so I just thought, you know, we always sort of get a one-sided picture of how, things might have been in history. And I never sort of thought of this aspect of it being a free for all for everyone mm -hmm. at the time, it was really chaotic. And so I wanted to bring in, that's not the focus of the book, but I, I did bring in elements of that uh, storytelling from her into it. That really happened. I've read a lot about that, that people just picked through it, whatever was available, they took. Yeah, for sure. All over Europe all over Europe. Tell us a little bit about your character, Marco. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm, I'm surprised that he was the one that you were sort of fascinated by. But I, was. <laughs> I mean, he was a lot of fun to write. He's mostly fictional, probably from a physical standpoint, I was inspired by someone that I had had met who lived in my community a very long time ago, but he was not a security guard. But there were a lot of really uh, wonderful guards at the museum and many with really fascinating stories, uh, you know, who and the way that they ended up at, at the museum was so different from so many people. They Sometimes they were very educated people who just didn't want to work in the corporate world anymore or just wanted to be around art all the time. So Marco was just someone that I thought might be a fun uh, partner in crime solving with the main character, Kalina Boyko. And that I could also write in a little bit of a, a, a love interest and, and having, again, sort of flipping uh, gender roles around where you have a, a younger man who's a little bit odd by a slightly older woman and, and she's kind of a, a reluctant cougar. So she's kind of putting him off all the time. But, uh, but yeah, and, and, uh, and just access to different information that a, a guard might have as opposed to some other kind of character in the museum. So a lot of fun to write. So how much research did you have to do and how challenging was that? Was that the most challenging part of your of writing both books or? It was different for, for each of the books. For the first one, I really was drawing from ex experiences. So there wasn't a lot of research. The research was already embedded in me. Embedded. 20 years of working at the ROM. Uh, but for the second book, I was also sort of writing a love letter to the city of Toronto. So I, I highlighted not just to the Royal Ontario Museum, but a lot of parts of the city that people don't often get to uh, visit or are acquainted with, and even inhabitants of the city who might not know about some of these parts of the city. So I did a couple of summers of doing walking tours around Toronto and getting ideas. And, and there's a, an actual group in Toronto called Lost Rivers that are connected with a green community here in mm -hmm. the And they, they do these wonderful walking tours, again, when those are available in different times in our lives. And so I was picking up ideas from that. I was doing research on you know, uh, on art that was stolen 
during World War II and, you know, coming up with these statistics that just blew my mind about how much is still missing and possibly at the bottom of lakes and not just art, but actual ca uh, cash and currency. Mm -hmm was taken as well so so yeah so there was there was more research for the uh, second, second one than for the first okay so what do you feel sets you apart from other indie authors well i think i found i have found my niche by writing about a setting that i knew really well and that the general public as a whole doesn't have access to. Uh, you know, people come to museums, they, they see the tip of the iceberg in terms of collections. That really is such a small percentage of what's on display and what's behind the scenes. And in Theft Between the Rains, you learn much more about how a lot of the collections are warehoused on a site quite distant from the museum and, and, actual, and actually in another a city uh, as well as I learned uh, recently, and so I so I'm able to bring in these tidbits of information about the way museums run, uh, the type of quirky but wonderful academics who work at museums, and and bring in authenticity to all of that because I experienced it for so long, and it, it, as I said, it sort of became an, ingrained in in me, and I. Mm -hmm able to uh, share that wholeheartedly. Okay, tell us about your indie experience. How has it changed from the very beginning until now? Yeah, it's funny because when I was first publishing, uh, or first finished my first draft, when I was in the creative writing program, I was actually warned by my mentors that if I self-published, I would never have a writing career. It was considered vanity publishing and that I shouldn't even consider it. So I really felt locked into that. And that's why I spent so much time looking for a traditional publisher and then dropping it for a while. And then things, as we all have seen, started to change very rapidly. And so by the time that I did have to self-publish Theft by Chocolate on my own, things were even within that two years from the the first when I published it traditionally to self-publishing it, things were had really progressed quite a bit. And then when I started to write Theft Between the Rains, I just decided right from the beginning to self-publish and primarily because it took me a, a long time to write and not because it's it it it's any different from the the, the first book but just that I was working full time, had lots of things going on. And so there was a big gap in, in between the two books. And I and by the time I was finished it, I was really anxious to get it out. And I didn't want to spend another year or two to find another publisher, which is often the minimum amount of time that an author should count on looking for one. And so I thought, you know, I've, I've had the experience of self-publishing the first book, and it just made more sense for me to publish it myself and get it out quickly, have more control over it, get a bigger cut of the royalties because as we know, they're not large, especially with eBooks. And so it, it's nice to have that control. At the same time, I certainly recognize that there, you know, there's some indie books are sometimes questioned that they might not be 
as as much of a, a good quality book as a as a book that might be pu published by a traditional publisher. So I think it's important to have a good editor and, a, and an editorial process, not to do it yourself. You really need an outside eye, beta readers, you know, people who can contribute yes. to, you know, some flaws that they might see in the story that you wouldn't see, no matter how many times you read your own work, you're going to, yes. I still sometimes will pull out my books when I do readings and will and we'll find typos in them, even though I've gone over them. I can't over and over again. And I'm sure every writer has experienced Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So. What platform did you self-publish on? So I use KDP. KDP. Yeah. Were you pretty happy with it? Would you recommend it to other authors who are considering writing? Yeah, you know what I think? I found their customer service was really good at the time that I was publishing. You know, I'm not sure if they are, they've been able to keep up the staffing now um, under the current conditions, but every time I needed to contact them about something, I was able to get someone on the line really quickly. And for me, it was also a comfort thing just because the first book had had been published that way on on Amazon, so it was just it was just easier. It was it was less of a learning curve. Uh, for my next works, I might do a little bit more research. I did start to do some research about other platforms, but okay. but honestly, it was it was just a matter of comfort, and they did end up uh, giving me a good service, and I was happy with it. Right, that's good to hear. Would you like to read to us? Sure. Sure, I'm just going to grab a little bit of water. Oh, sure, go ahead. So this is actually taken from my first book, Theft by Chocolate. Okay. And it, I'm not going to do a, a setup for it. There's just a couple of characters, so it won't be too confusing. But it does take place near the end of the book. But I will stop at a place where no spoiler alert is required. Okay. I won't ruin it for for anyone, and uh, and also because it's it's a really good example of being able to share a part of the museum that most people do not know about. When I do readings at libraries, for example, people are usually shocked to find out about it, and and it's the one thing that I often will get questions about: is that is that real? It's very very real, and I actually had pictures that I had taken of this place and was able to work from when I was writing this particular scene in my book. So here we go. I bolted from the office and passed through the doors on the other side of the gallery. When I descended the stair staircase, I realized I'd forgotten to advise security I'd be setting off an alarm or two. Oh, well, it was too late. They'd probably dispatched a floater to check the area already, so I'd have to apologize later for the breach. Upon arrival at the underground level of the curatorial center, I headed towards the prep labs. There were various rooms dedicated to everything from carpentry and welding to taxidermy. 1B7, where was it? It had to be up ahead. Oh, there it was, 1B7, ornithology prep lab. Hmm, why would Richard pick the bird preparation area? But since when did Richard do anything logical? I twisted the knob and the door opened. It was as black as road tar inside. Richard, are you here? There was no response. 
great. Not only did he order me to meet in these bizarre surroundings, but he was late. I located a switch on the wall and a single dim light was illuminated. As my eyes adjusted, I noticed a bag suspended above my head. I gazed up and saw a stuffed stork gripping a diaper bag in its beak. I guess that's what they consider ornithologist humor around here. It was impossible to avoid banging into things in the tight space. The room was jammed with fume hoods, desks, filing cabinets and boxes. I walked over to a storage unit and pulled out a tray. Oh, it was filled with countless specimens of small birds. I heard the museum was a repository for the 5,000 plus dead birds collected annually by FLAP. The Toronto Animal Rights Group gathered birds that had crashed into skyscrapers illuminated at night and the museum took most of the sky kill off their hands for research purposes. But I never realized the museum had such an extensive and morbid Morgon site. I shoved the tray back in and noticed more ornithologist humor up ahead. Someone had cut out an image of the Grim Reaper and attached it to a dark blue metal door labeled Members Lounge. Above it, a sign written in calligraphy read, Abandon all hope ye who enter here. Well, if that wasn't an invitation to enter, what was? I slid the bolt across, cracked open the door and stepped inside. A ghastly smell blasted me and I turned to escape. But as I rotated, the door slammed in my face and I heard the faint sound of metal scratching against metal. I reached for the knob, but the door refused to budge. Then something scampered across my feet and I let out a blood curdling scream. Is anyone out there? I pounded on the door. Richard, Richard. Nausea overcame me from the horrible odor that coated my nostrils and seeped into my lungs. I clutched the walls in search of a light switch, but they were clammy from the room's dense humidity. Finally, my fingers made contact with a small plastic lever and my horrific surroundings were illuminated. Beside me rested a large filing cabinet and atop it stood a white cross constructed of cardboard. The letters RIP were emblazoned on the cross and someone had further embellished it with crude drawings of insects. I peered around and felt energy draining from my body as though it were being siphoned off. Down at my feet, boxes held decaying bird carcasses, dead rodents and severed limbs of mammals. Masses of beetles fed on the rotting flesh while others flitted about looking for their next meal. I was imprisoned inside the museum's infamous bug room. I knew about the bug room, but until this moment had not known where it was situated. I did know, however, it was inhabited by tens of thousands of carrion eating insects used to turn animal carcasses into pristine skeletons. The three different variety of bugs could consume a small bird overnight, while larger animals such as a deer could take up to a month to be cleaned. I'd also been told that staff never spent more than five minutes in the impermeable container as the bugs would begin to fly when the light was left on too long. Oh, the thought of a room filled with airborne flesh-eating beetles amplified my panic. I struck the light switch, blanketing the room with darkness again. God damn it, someone help me. I clobbered the door with my fist, all the while doubting my cries and pounding were audible beyond the room, let alone in the hallway. For a moment, I stopped to swipe my arms and legs. It appeared that if I kept in a state of motion, the bugs avoided me. 
the lifeless flesh in the boxes was apparently an easier meal ticket. But how long could I keep up the frenetic movement before passing out from the foul reek? Very nice. Thank you. So that's the infamous bug room. <laughs> wow. Okay, tell us about your upcoming event with Diana. So I'm going to be doing a, 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 a virtual event, obviously, and with Paige's promotions um, as a sort of a, a, a they'll, they'll be hosting me. And uh, it's, it will include a couple of readings, but I'm going to be focusing a little bit more on the, the challenges of an independent um, author and talk and I know we've talked about it a little bit but talking more about not just the challenges of the independent publishing but the opportunities as well because I just just found that if you get creative there's a lot of different ways that you can get your work in front of people I've been very fortunate in that um, I've been I've done library readings for both of my books but I've also I also really hustled and uh, especially with the first book and, and the, the word chocolate in the title, that kind of opened some unusual doorways for me, like at yeah. shops and uh, or, or places that sold pastries and that sort of thing where I did readings with smaller groups or small art galleries. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about that whole process of, you know, trying to find innovative ways to, um, or places where you could do readings, talk a little bit about some of my experiments with social media and what worked and what didn't. As you are aware, I recently finished uh, a blog tour, so I, and I had done one with my first book as well, so I thought I'd do it with this one. So I wanted to talk about those things. So I will talk about, at, at any of the events I do, I, I, talk about my writing journey and publishing journey because I feel that there's so many people with great stories out there and they're sometimes intimidated and feel that they couldn't possibly uh, do the, do this themselves. So, you know, if I tell them, well, someone like me did <laughs> and so could you too. And, and just to encourage people to share their stories, I think it's really important. I mean, I, I know people make light of the fact that, you know, everyone thinks they're a writer or everyone thinks they're a photographer or or everyone thinks they're a musician, but but we all have these you know beautifully creative sides of ourselves, and I don't think there's anything wrong with more and more people getting into the the marketplace with with their work and their art. Absolutely. How about your third book that you're planning or working on? Yeah, so it's um it's it's actually based on a screenplay that I had uh, written about 10 years ago. So my first foray into writing, well, I shouldn't say my first, um, because I was doing some blogging, but it was all tied into my love of film. I used to always attend the Toronto International Film Festival mm -hmm. and as what I call a guerrilla film fester. So I would see 50 films in 10 days. And the friend who introduced me to the film festival ended up moving overseas and so she wasn't able to attend anymore. So I, to sort of, 
she, she wanted to live the festival through me vicariously. So I started sending emails daily about the films I was seeing and the adventures I was having. And that, and more and more people started finding out I was doing that. And that eventually morphed into a blog. At that time that I was doing the emails, the word blog didn't even exist. So right. you know, right. again, we have this progression of technology uh, through my writing journey. And so I... Um, just really got hooked on on writing. I, I had this this audience, and I thought, "Geez, that kind of feels great sharing my stories." And people seemed to enjoy them. I thought I had a little bit of a sense of humor, and people seemed to enjoy a little having a little bit of light reading in their life. And so I and and so I decided to venture um, a little bit more deeply. Uh, into writing, but I started first with screenwriting because I loved film so much and I really, really enjoyed it uh, tremendously. It's a different kind of writing. And I believe you do some screenwriting. Yep. As well. uh, yes, so I do. You, yes, I yeah, do. So, so, you know, it, it's different. It's, it's much more impressionistic and there's, um, you know, you, you, you leave a, a, a lot of space for the visual to take over. A lot more visual. Yeah, exactly. And writing scenes, which some authors started doing in their novels using that same technique. Yeah, exactly. Um, but what I found after I had finished the story, I... I, I Took it seriously enough. I was trying to um, see if I could find someone um, to to pick it up, but didn't have any success. And then I I I really did <laughs> fall in love with my own story, and I thought um, I wanted to flesh it out mm -hmm. uh, and bring much more depth to it. And so I had it on, on the back of my mind for years and, and years, but just never got around to it. I ended up then taking, doing this coursework in, in novel writing and creative writing. And so the, the screenplay just sat for all this time. And I finally have this gap in my creative life at the moment. Mm -hmm. I decided to go back to the screenplay about characters who meet uh, whose, whose souls meet in different lifetimes and whose paths uh, intersect. But it, it's the, the story has changed in some ways. It's, it's great to have the bones that I have from the screenplay. So it's, it's kind of mm -hmm. act as my structure. But I've, I've changed um, the types of um, positions or employment that the characters do because I wanted to sort of keep the museum theme and I didn't have that in the screenplay originally. Okay. So it's going to revolve um, around a couple of characters, one of whom is a textiles uh, conservator and then a second one uh, who is um, an intern at the museum, but but they're working at the museum several decades apart, and so I'm going to intertwine the stories and bring this little bit of of a paranormal nature into it because something that's always kind of fascinated me and the, the soul journeys, and so I'm really excited. I, I'm I'm not too far into it. I'm finding I'm I'm having to do. Uh, much more research than I did for my first two books. I'm obviously not a textiles uh, conservator, so I'm, you know, there are things about that that I've been looking up, and so it's it's been a lot of fun uh, getting into that. And I, you know, I I think I think it's going to be a very different kind of journey for me, and I will once again look at 
independently publishing it, most likely. That sounds fascinating. Looking forward to it. And where can people see you in person this summer, if possible? Are you considering <laughs> any, are you brave enough to consider an in-person event or? You know what, Emma, I'm based in Toronto and it's a hot spot here as far as the pandemic goes. We're fourth largest city in North America, so really dense population. We've been on a pretty strict lockdown since mm -hmm. it's just barely, barely opening up in Toronto. And so they've already they're already canceling again major events such as the Toronto International Film Festival, our documentary film festival. And I just recently received something from Word on the Street, which is our big book and magazine festival. And there, which and that takes place in the fall in September. And they're going virtual again too. Again? So there's there's at this point there's no immediate openings that doesn't look like in 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 terms of doing live things and you know in some ways it's I mean I'm I'm fine with it because I have mm -hmm. been, I have been promoting this book for a while now and I was really fortunate to get a number of library virtual library readings which a lot of um, authors don't always have that uh, opportunity to do but I again as an independent author, I, I, I sort of know that you have to hustle for these things. And I would send out, I literally, I think I counted, sent out 50 to 55 emails to libraries with proposals. And I, you know, I probably had a 10% return on that. But I did, you know, but I did get these virtual events, which were great. Uh, but I, you know, it's, it's, it's tough, because there's so much content out there on the internet, like yes. it, I personally have a hard time keeping up with things and so many courses that I'm wanting to do virtually and that sort of thing. So I probably will organically just kind of tail off the, the marketing for theft between the reins. And I have made a conscious decision not to publish my next book until it is a more open world and I can do live events. My personal experience has been, even though people really enjoy the virtual events, that you don't get the same kind of book sales at, at when you're finished it. When you're in when you're in a library setting or a venue, as I mentioned, like in a sweet shop or an art gallery, you know, there's there's that energy and and immediate connection with the author, and people want that hard a copy of a book and and they want to watch you sign it in in front of them and however when you get off a virtual event you know all they have to do is hit their mouse and go on to the next virtual event nice. and the next one and the next one so there they just um there hasn't been sort of the same kind of momentum in terms of getting your work out there that way and so i've been blogging instead i have a pandemic project that i've also been working on that that i'm finding really satisfying as well and just sort of focusing on that to develop a bigger uh, audience and and hopefully a bigger readership for when i do have the new book and i probably you know i'm not one of these people who uh, madly writes um, you know, 10,000 <laughs> words a day. Okay. I'm, I'm a slow writer. I, I take my time. I, I have this philosophy that 
uh, a story will be born when it's ready to be born. Yes, absolutely. So I don't, I don't fret about that, about when it comes out. So I'm, I'm happy to wait for a while until, until it does. But I don't, I don't know how you feel about that. I'm actually interested in your opinion on that. I like to let the idea gel too. I don't jump really quickly into. Well, you know, I do get dreams, but I don't necessarily get up the next morning and start immediately writing. I just let it process mm -hmm. and then more stuff enters into my head and then somehow it starts coming together. I always call it as like putting the pieces of a puzzle together. Always, always. For sure. And I, I you know, I'm in, in a place where now I'm... Um, I, I'm not working uh, full time anymore. I, and I, before I used to have a full time job and was teaching yoga, and I'm doing neither at the moment. And so I have the the luxury to meditate in the mornings and uh, do yoga or a little bit of cardio. And and so like you, I kind of like to, I I, I like to I guess um, ideate. I guess is is the word. Mm -hmm think about things and then I usually leave my writing sort of to the afternoon and early evenings and with my um, with my blogging I it's a it it's just an idea that that came to me from living in in such a small space in my condo here in Toronto it's just 350 square feet and uh, although I, I I think I must have been in some sort of um, monastic environment in a previous life or something, because I've I've actually been feeling very comfortable and, and really quite liked it. But I started becoming more aware uh, because I had to downsize actually a few times before I got to this this smaller space. It, they were conscious decisions um, as I journeyed through my life. And but I'm I'm becoming much more aware of particular things that I have continued to hold on to and not gotten rid of in a garage sale or or just giving it away. So I'm letting the things in my place inspire little stories and and um, have, have started this this series that I promote on Facebook and Instagram. And if you go to my website, you can also find links to um, to my blog or up, up the, the page with my blog. I called a nebulous number of days of automaty and memory. So just how little things in my place have triggered memories that I haven't thought of in a long time. And I've been finding that it's really been helping with my writing craft because I it's been a while since I, I've been uh, writing because I finished Theft Between the Rains. It's already been at least a year and a half now. So I've okay. Writing a lot, so I'm finding that the the blogging has been great for that, and really sort of developing or bringing my skills back up again. So yeah, I agree. I love yeah. blogging; just love it. Yeah. All right. Would you like to give us your parting shot? Yes. What I decided to do for that is um, here in Canada, and I I remember you told me that you lived in Canada for. Yes. A while so there's a tradition that has started more in recent years in terms of acknowledging that the land that we are living and working on and i would like to take the opportunity to do that thank you 
So I encourage you to reflect on the history of the land that you are watching from. I am speaking to you from my home in Toronto, a Mohawk word which translates to where the trees meet the water or the gathering place. Toronto is bound by dish with one spoon, a treaty between the Anishinaabe and the Haudenosaunee to share the territory, promote peace and protect the land. I acknowledge them and any other nations who care for the land, recorded and unrecorded, and I pay my respect to Canada's first storytellers. Beautiful. Thank you, Luba. Thank You're you so very welcome. much. Thank you for the interview and have a great career. And Thank I'm sure you. We'll see each other. And we'll be in touch. I feel like we'll we be in touch. Good friends. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Thanks. Emma. Take care.